0: We are in the second week of our three weeks looking at the virtue of humble, and our scripture today is a passage that we started to look at last week. We're going to go deeper in it this week, and it is Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 through 11. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself So I want to start off by looking at what really should be a simple question but it actually turns out to be not so simple after all. And the question is what is humility? And all of us I think have a common everyday understanding of what humility is, what it means to be humble. If you look online you look up dictionary.com, you'll actually find a four-part definition of humble, and here they are. So the first one is not proud or arrogant, modest. The second one is having a feeling of insignificance, inferiority, subservience. The third is low in rank, importance, status, quality. And the fourth is courteously respectful. So I was thinking about these four elements of the definition of humble, and it actually came to mind that tonight is the Oscars. And I'm sure if we watch the Oscars, we will actually see all four of these definitions in display in one way or another. When we see the Oscar winners on the stage giving their acceptance speeches, what we'll see is people trying their hardest to be humble. And in their speeches, they will say things like they will thank a whole list of people. And they will say things like, I couldn't have done it on my own. And there were so many great performances in the Academy this year modesty, humble. And inevitably, there will be people who fit the second definition. They will be feeling insignificant or inferior. Now, you may not see it, people may not say it, but the reality is the who's who of Hollywood is gathering the most wealthy people, the most glamorous people, the most beautiful people. And so you know in that room there are people who are feeling insignificant and inferior. They're comparing themselves to those who want, to other people who are in the room. There are people who are watching that will feel insignificant, inferior, just because they're watching. Humble. There are those who will be considered of low rank or status or importance. There are a lot of people that aren't going to be interviewed on the red carpet. There are people who won't have their photos taken of them and splashed in magazines. There are people who are just a part of the entourage. There are people who are working behind the scenes. There are people who are helping to make the Oscars happen. Some people will even consider that the people who are nominated for those obscure categories that never make it onto TV are of lower rank or importance. So you have that aspect of humility. And then finally, because everything is on TV, everyone is going to be on their best behavior. You're going to see a lot of courteous, courteous respectfulness, a lot of arms that are offered, a lot of doors that are opened and after use. This is one other element of humility that you'll see. And if we take these four, I think they really fall into two major categories. Right? These everyday common defini- definition of humility. And one of the ways that you know, this is really expressed is you take the first definition and the fourth definition, and what you basically have is polite modesty. This is what we often see on TV. This is what we'll hear those Oscar winners trying to do to be politely modest uh, when a team wins the big game and the star is interviewed, they often come across as politely modest. I couldn't have done it without my teammates. I'm just so amazed. This is like a dream come true. I could never have imagined being here. Polite modesty. Now, this isn't a surprise. It's actually an extension of what you know. we teach our kids to do, what we were what we were encouraged to do as we were growing up if we receive an award or an accolade or we have a huge victory we're taught not to rub it into people's faces right not to parade around you know not to be like i'm the winner you're the loser ha ha even if that's what we're feeling right we're taught to be politely modest to form a line and give high fives and say good game right this this is what we're trained to do there there's nothing wrong with polite modesty, but it is actually easy to be a little bit skeptical of this kind of humility because the reality is we're supposed to be politely modest whether we feel that way or not. And especially when we think about public figures and celebrities, Polite modesty is really good for someone's reputation and personal brand, right? So polite modesty is what gets you on a Wheaties box. Polite modesty is what you know, gives you promo opportunities. It feeds your bottom line. And if humility is all about polite modesty, the problem with that is that there becomes no difference between being humble and acting humble and that humility ends up being just one more way to get ahead, to get other people to think well of you, to become more successful. And surely, there's more to humility than that. Now, the other part of humility, you can basically take that second definition and that third definition, put them together, and that's a definition of humility feeling insignificant or inferior, having low rank or status, that if we're honest, no one really wants that. right? No one is seeking after feelings of inferiority and wanting to pursue low status or importance. And so when you take these common everyday definitions of humility and you put them together, it doesn't end up being a surprise that no one is really seeking after humility for its own sake. So if you go onto Amazon.com, for example, and you look at the self-help section, okay, things that people are searching for and looking for for themselves, if you search self-help for better relationships or how to be more successful, you will find over 50,000 choices of books to choose from to help you attain those goals. If you search in that section for self-esteem, which might seem to be much more useful than humility, you will find over 60,000 choices on how to get higher self-esteem. But if you search that section for humility, you will find 254 books. People are not interested in humility for its own sake. The important thing to recognize is that when the Bible speaks of humility, it is talking about something radically different than our common everyday understanding of humility. And we recognize this as soon as we start to take a look at the life of Jesus. Because beyond a doubt, as soon as you start to take a look at the life of Jesus, you will recognize that Jesus does not fit the everyday definition of humility. And that immediately Jesus was many things, but he was not modestly polite. Jesus didn't show up and go, "Um, I'm an okay healer. The miracle worker down the road is a pretty good healer too. You can take your pick. We'll both try our best. He didn't go, I have some thoughts about God. A lot of people have some thoughts about God. You to take my thoughts for what they're worth. Maybe they'll be helpful to you. Jesus started his ministry in Luke 4. He got up in a synagogue on the Sabbath day. He unrolled the scroll of Isaiah, and he declared, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And just in case people didn't get it, he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, if Jesus were posting on Twitter, that's not even like a hashtag humble brag, right? That is just in your face, bold claim, this is who I am and why I have come. And the people who heard it were offended, they were angered, they were like, who are you to be able to say such things? and they literally decided, you need to die for these words. We're gonna take you to a cliff and try to throw you off of it. Because Jesus did not hold back about being clear on who he was. In John eight, this wasn't a unusual circumstance. In John eight, Jesus is speaking to a crowd, and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, if the person sitting next to you turned to you and said, I am the light of the world. If you wanna never walk in darkness, stick close by me, your first thought would not be, wow, this person is so humble. Right? You would be thinking, how do I contact security and move to another seat? Because when people say things like this, it is crazy unless it's true. And if it's true, then it's not helpful to anyone to be politely modest. This is what we see in Jesus' life. He refuses to be politely modest. He also refuses to have the other definition of humility. He refuses to have a feeling of insignificance or inferiority, Inferiority uh, to be low in rank or status. In John 8, further down the road, after he says, I am the light of the world, he's having a public argument about what that means. And he's engaging in a heated discussion with the rulers, Uh, the teachers of the law, the rulers of the day, the elite in Jewish society. He's having a public argument with them, not someone who is shrinking away. And the religious leaders are rejecting what Jesus is saying, and they say, we don't have to listen to you because we know who we are. We are children of Abraham. And Jesus replies in that passage, Before Abraham was, I am. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, you know that the only one who gets to say, I am, and not put anything behind it, like I am happy, I am sad, I am, is God himself. And that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying exactly what we see Philippians 2 testifying to, that Jesus was in very nature God himself. He was saying, I share God's glory. Before creation began, I was there. And the people who heard this claim were outraged. Again, they pick up stones, they want to kill him. Right? This is a pattern in Jesus' life. So when we look at the way that Jesus lived, the things that Jesus said, clearly the kind of humility that Jesus had, the way that Jesus is humble, does not fit our common everyday definition of humility. And if we're going to understand biblical humility, what it truly means to be humble, then we need a new definition, a different definition that fits who Jesus was. So let me suggest this definition, and then we're gonna take a look at how it reflects Jesus's life. And this definition of humility famously comes from C.S. Lewis, and this is his definition of true Christian humility. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself but thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, not thinking that you're lower, not putting yourself down, but it's thinking of yourself less, thinking of others more, thinking of other people's needs more. All right, let's break down each part of this definition. So what does it mean that humility is not thinking less of yourself, right? So this is exactly what we see Jesus doing. Philippians 2.6, where, where, where it says of Jesus, Jesus being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God, and it, it's not that he didn't consider equality with God something to acknowledge, something to, that was real, it's not like he pretended that wasn't true, he considered equality with God not something to be used for his own advantage. Jesus knew who he was, and he didn't shy away from it. He knew his identity. He was at peace with it. He was comfortable with it. He had a purpose behind it. And here, Jesus models for us what the Bible actually teaches all of us to do. So the Apostle Paul, in Romans 12, 3, writes this instruction to the entire church. And he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather, and he doesn't say, think of yourself super lowly, think of yourself as nothing, think of yourself as weak or shameful. He says, think of yourself with sober judgment. Be sober. Don't be drunk when you're thinking of yourself, in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. So, this is the first part of what humility is having an accurate assessment of yourself. It's not thinking of yourself too highly, not thinking of yourself too lowly, but simply knowing who you are. And then the second part is humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Thinking of yourself less often. Being able to have the, your attention and your focus not on yourself, how am I feeling, Uh, What what does it mean that I'm in this room? What do people think of me? Am I dressed well? Um, Does my breath smell? All those things that we, we think with the anxiety, the insecurity, but it's being able to be free of that and to think about others more. And this is what Philippians 2 verse 3 means when it says, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others it's not saying that other people are more valuable than you we are all created in the image of god each one of us is infinitely precious to god so i know that many of us have times where we are inclined to kind of feel bad about ourselves to put us down to feel like we wish we were better than we're at and all I can say is, when we feel like that, God does not pile on and say, yeah, you should feel bad about yourself. Right? God says, know who you are, but think about yourself less often. Get over yourself and your hang-ups and be able to be free to think about the needs of others. And when you're free to do that, the needs of others will naturally become more important to you and your own set of needs will naturally become less. Now, here's a truly fascinating thing, and maybe this is especially helpful if you're here, and you're not sure what to think about this God thing or this Jesus thing or, you know, what the Bible, if there is anything to the Bible, over the last 10 years, social scientists and researchers have converged on a definition of humility that exactly matches what the Bible says. So, People have struggled with studying humility and defining humility for a long, long time, right? And there are lots of challenges to it because when you study something like joy, you can actually ask people, do you feel joyful? And you can take their response as yes or no. And, um, and when you know, if people are afraid, you can ask people, you know, do you struggle with fear? And when people say, you know, yes, I am fearful or not, you can take that at face value. If you ask people, do you consider yourself humble? you have a really hard time with the response because if people say, yes, I am very humble, what are you supposed to do with that? And people will say, I am not humble at all, then what, what does that mean? So people have been wrestling with measuring and defining humility for a long, long time. And over the last 10 years, social scientists and researchers have basically landed on this definition of humility that exactly matches the Bible. And they say there is an intrapersonal facet of humility, something that is inside of us, which is basically the ability to have an accurate sense of ourselves. And then the other facet is interpersonal. It's how we relate to other people. And that facet is basically whether we are, we are focused on ourselves or focused on others. And humility is being able to be focused on caring for others, building others up, and serving others. So here's here's what this gets us. When we have this definition of humility, that humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but it's thinking of ourselves less, this is where the power of humility is unleashed through our lives. It was only because Jesus was humble in this way that Jesus knew who he was. He didn't shrink away from it. He didn't shy away from his identity as God's son. But he didn't use that for his own advantage, but he was thinking about others. He was thinking about the world when he came. When he was engaging with the Pharisees, he was thinking about them and how to help them to see the heart of God that they were missing. When he was engaging with people who were sick with lepers, he was thinking about them and how to bring the healing of God into their lives. When he was with the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, he was thinking about them and how to share with them how much God loved them and how much they mattered to God. And when he was hanging on the cross and he was dying, he was thinking about you and he was thinking about me. And he was thinking, this is how I can bring salvation and forgiveness and healing and transformation into these lives of people that I love and care so much about. It is this humility that allowed Jesus to make himself nothing, to humble himself by becoming obedient to death, even death. On a cross. The only way Jesus was able to fulfill God's purpose for his life was by having this true and authentic humility. And the only way we, you and I, are going to be able to fulfill God's purpose for our lives is by having this true. And authentic humility. It is essential. So I want us to spend the remaining time thinking about two ways that we have to practically wrestle with this. So the first way that we have to practically wrestle with this is that we have to do something that's incredibly hard for all of us which is to gain an accurate sense of ourselves. And this not only includes having an accurate sense of our strengths and our weaknesses, our skills and abilities, but it's even more than that. It's gaining an accurate sense of our identity, of who we really are and what our foundation is. And this is something that is incredibly challenging for all people even knowing our strengths and weaknesses is incredibly challenging. All right, so let's do this exercise together. All right, so how many people here drive on a regular basis, like kind of drive on a weekly basis. Most people, right? The AI machines have not taken over yet, right? So some of us drive on our commute, some of us drive for work, maybe we drive rideshare, maybe uh, it's part of the work that we do. Some of it is we shuttle our kids or our family members around. So I want you to take a moment to think about the time that you spend driving and think about all the other drivers on the road around you. And then I'm gonna ask you to assess yourself. Are you a below average driver or an above average driver? Okay? And I, if you assess yourself as a below average driver, I want you to raise your hand. Okay? <laughs> One for a couple people in the back, all right. So thank you for self-identifying. We know to look out for you in the parking lot, give you lots of room, it's very helpful. All right, so that means everyone else, and I want you to raise your hand, you're assessing yourself as an above average driver, right? Let me see your hands, who's an above average driver here? Yeah, you can't help yourself. You know you're being set up because this is a message about humility and you still can't help yourself. When drivers are surveyed in America, and yes, this applies to American drivers more than any other country in the world, 93% of them will say they are an above average driver. Now, you don't have to be a math person to know that that is impossible. It violates the definition of average, right? 90% of people cannot be above average. There's actually a condition that is tied to this kind of behavior, and it's called illusory superiority, right? You have a condition. We all do. Very often, we overestimate our own abilities because we are desperate to feel like we matter, that we're competent, that we know what we're doing. We want to protect that image at all costs. And so, if we're at a place where we can defend that image by claiming competence at something, we tend to do it. And then, of course, at other times, when we're extremely insecure and we're afraid of being publicly embarrassed, We swing to the other direction, and we can come up with all kinds of excuses, right? In the last message series, if you were here, we looked at Moses, and Moses was able to come up with all kinds of excuses about how he was the wrong person. He couldn't speak, you know, all sorts of reasons why he couldn't do what God was asking him to do. And ultimately, what Moses said is something that some of us feel, which is, God, would you please send someone else to do X, Y, or Z? We're not good at assessing ourselves honestly. But here's the key. If we want to take a step forward in knowing ourselves, in being able to have an honest view of ourselves, it is God's grace that makes honest self-appraisal possible. See, this is what Paul is saying in Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. When we don't have God's grace operating in our lives, when we don't know that God loves us where God's love for us is unconditional, then we are searching for that assurance and we're trying to find that somewhere else. And the reality is we're never going to find that in the voice of our critics, people that are hating on us, people that are trying to tear us down and undermine us. We're never going to find that in the voice of our fans, people that are raving about us and cheering us on and that we can never do wrong in their eyes. We're never going to find that even in the eyes of our parents who have a different set of expectations, who have all kinds of family culture issues. We're never even going to find that in our own eyes, right? Many of us can be honest enough to know that how we feel about ourselves and how we see ourselves varies drastically based on the circumstances that we're in. And if we are trying to find our sense of self and our identity in any of those things, we're always going to be on shaky ground until we reach the point where we can see ourselves through God's eyes and know that God, the one who loves us with an everlasting love, the one who says to us, you are my child. I am well pleased with you. My love for you is unconditional. I have saved you, I have called you, and you are mine. I have made you. Until we see ourselves through God's eyes and know that our identity is rooted there, we will never have a stable sense of ourselves. When we are able to see ourselves in that way, then we are set free. We have the assurance of knowing that we're okay no matter what. And it means that we can not only listen to our friends and family and those who care about us, in receiving feedback. We can even listen to our critics and be okay to say, wow, this person really has it in for me, but I can hear what they say and I can even assess whether or not there's anything legitimate about their feedback to me because I want to be the best person that I can be. And we can take all of ourselves We don't have to be super embarrassed or defensive. We can take all of ourselves with our strengths and our weaknesses, our hang-ups and our fears and insecurities, and we can bring all of that to God, and we can be free to say, this is who I am. God, would you show me with all that you've made me to be, all the gifts and skills you've given me, The passions that you've given me, the resources that you've placed in my life, the time that you have given me, what do you want me to do with my life? What is your purpose for me? I'm giving myself all to you. And we can take that step forward in being totally free to serve and honor God. And that flows directly into the second practical implication of real humility. That real humility will allow us to be courageous and sacrificial as we accomplish God's purpose for our lives. When we look at Jesus, it was this real humility that allowed him to be obedient to death, even death on a cross. It allowed him to push through the trial of Gethsemane, to wrestle with God, but to be faithful in giving up his life. And this is where, when we look at the common, everyday definition of humility, this is where it totally breaks down. Because when you look at everyday humility, kind of polite modesty, polite modesty will never get us to the place of being courageous, we taking risks of being able to choose for something that might have a cost for ourselves. But real humility, knowing who we are, thinking not thinking less about ourselves, but thinking about ourselves less, thinking about others more. that's what allows us to stand up for. God's heart, to stand up for matters of justice, to stand up for those who are marginalized or oppressed or struggling, and to be able to live life in a way that is courageous, that says I'm going to put myself out there and even if there's a cost for me, I'm going to do what God is calling me to do. I'm going to fulfill the purpose that God has made for me which is always gonna take faith, it's always gonna cause us to stretch out because God's purpose is always gonna be bigger than just about us. I wanna close just with a, a brief story. Um, this is the last Sunday of February, the last Sunday of Black History Month. And uh, I wanna close uh, with a, a story that I learned from my daughters. My daughters um, love to read and uh, they were reading a book about significant women in history, and they introduced me to the story of Claudette Colvin. I think we have a picture of her that we're putting up. In March of 1955, growing up in Montgomery, Alabama, Claudette Colvin was 15 years old. Claudette was riding the city bus, and the bus filled up with passengers. Because Claudette was black, she was asked by the bus driver to stand up, give up her seat, so that a young, white woman could sit. And Claudette refused. She was physically dragged off the bus. As she was being dragged off the bus, she was crying out, I have a constitutional right to not have to give up this seat. She was among the first to protest the system of segregation on the buses of Montgomery, Alabama, She ended up being one of the very first to be willing to be a legal case about this issue. And so she was represented in court. The case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. She gave pivotal testimony all along the way that helped to overturn the segregation laws on the buses in Montgomery, Alabama. And the amazing part is that her arrest came nine months before the arrest of Rosa Parks. Now there were all sorts of reasons why uh, the NAACP at the time decided not to move forward with the boycott around her case. But the interesting thing is that in those nine months, Claudette Colvin joined Rosa Parks's youth group. Rosa Parks was the leader, Claudette joined the group, they became great friends. And so one of the impacts of Claudette's choice to not give up her seat, to know who she was and who God had made her to be, and to stand up not only for herself, but on behalf of others, was that her story helped to inspire and to solidify the, the, the faith and the conviction that allowed Rosa Parks not to give up seat and together the two of them were instrumental in the launch of the civil rights movement. And it strikes me that courageous humility is not for a small group of people. You're not too old to be courageously humble. You're not too young to be courageously humble. You don't have to be perfect to be courageously humble. If you know who you are because of who God has made you to be, and his love for you, and you have a heart for other people around you, and you're willing to consider the needs of others, then God can use courageous humility to inspire others and change the world. I often remind my daughters, as an Asian-American family, if we were living in the South at that time or passing through the South in the 1950s, we would have been considered under those same segregation laws. And so we owe a personal debt of gratitude for all those who launched and, um, and fought in the civil rights movement. And it also strikes me for all of us here at New Beginnings, a church that literally could not have existed in America just 60 years ago, that we all owe a debt of gratitude for those who were willing to live with courageous humility. (laughs) Amen. And for us, the invitation that we have as we reflect on the impact and the power of courageous humility is not just to appreciate those who have gone before and how it's made a difference in our lives, but also to be willing to take the steps forward that we need to take to cultivate courageous humility in us so that we can do what God is calling us to do to be a blessing to others. Amen? Amen. All right, as we close, uh, I want you to take out your connection cards or take out your app to be able to fill this out. And I want to start just by giving an invitation. One of the ways that the passage that we looked at, the way that it ends, is by an affirmation of how God responded to Jesus' courageous humility. And it says that because of what Jesus did, because of the humility that allowed him to become obedient to death, even death on the cross, for each one of us, that God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess or acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And for each one of us, that is an invitation today to affirm that, to reaffirm that, that when in humility, we are able to acknowledge that what we desperately need is the identity that God gives us to be able to say, we can see ourselves, we can know who we are because we see through God's eyes, because we know that God has loved us unconditionally. And when we're able to take hold of that, Our decision to be able to be available to God and to consider the needs of others is really an act of surrender. It's an act of surrender to the love and the grace of God that says, God, I will trust you with my life and my eternity, and I know that I will be okay. I can live my life fully for your purposes because you have been good to me.